Richards. Yes, that's exactly what it is. Welcome, lovely to have you with us. It's SFM Literature. It's a show about words and writing and books and reading. Today about biography, autobiography, leaving the land of your birth, group editing, trails and all sorts of other things. And the team today is Solo Fellow Pelo in Johannesburg, Uleba Hang Momana, Momana in uh, Joburg also. And uh, down here with me in Cape Town we have Derek Fordyce. And let me just warn you right now that it's going to be a slightly shorter show today because we're going to be crossing just before the news at three to the Cenotaph where Peter James Smith will be re bringing us the Remembrance Day service. So what a good reason for this show to be ever so slightly shorter. There we go. So what have we got in our lineup for today? Well, and uh, in our new uh, our new uh, disposition, as it were, we've got two heroes. We're going to be talking firstly to uh, Judith Crummock. It's an autobiography of sorts that she's written. It's called Beyond the Baobab. She was formerly an arts editor right here on SAFM, so high time she came back. But uh, nonetheless, 25 years ago, she left to settle in the U.S., where she's now a classical music DJ, DJ fulfilling her dreams. We're going to be hearing all about her story of leaving and returning momentarily. Second hero is Bongani Madondo. He's going to be talking about his late hero, or heroine, I guess, Brenda Fassi, in the book that he's written and compiled about her called I'm Not Your Weekend Special. And it's uh, it's one ride of a book, so looking forward to having a chat to Bongani. Then in our text item, well, as you know, for many it's a dream to write a book, but there are a great deal of obstacles, as I'm sure Judith will tell us in just a minute, great deal of obstacles towards making a book happen, and not least of them is getting a proper editor. Well, we'll be chatting to Hector MacDonald of Advanced Publishing in the, the UK, and he has a solution that kind of, kind of involves group editing, or social editing, we could call it, and he's going to be sharing uh, thoughts on that. So if you're busy writing a book, make sure you listen, or if you're maybe an editing pedant, maybe listen because I think he's got uh, got some ideas for you. After the news at two, a biography who has a biographer, I should say, who's turned the spotlight on herself, on herself and her mother. She's Lyndall Gordon, and she'll be talking about the literary, living, and loving relationship between herself and her mum in a book called Divided Lives, and it is uh, quite a book. Our bookshelf reader for today is Simpiwe Hadebe, going to be telling us what uh, what they're reading. And in our story feature, well, our story is uh, it's, it's a slightly different kind of a story in as much as we're going to be talking to a very intrepid walker and climber. He's Mike Landy, and he'll be sharing his own story on what he's been sharing in his book called Weekend Trails in the Western Cape, which is in its seventh publishing. So there you go. How's that for a popular book? So that's what we've got lined up, and that will bring us to the end of the show for today. But if there's anything that you'd like to uh, contact us about, you can pop us a mail. We're at books at safm.co.uk. Dot today, or find us on Facebook. We put up all the info there as, as much as we're able to. It's uh, SAFM Literature on SAFM. That's our Facebook page. A couple of things I wanted to tell you. Well, the, first, the one thing I really did want to tell you, if you were listening to us talking last week, we were talking to Karen Brainard about her book called Weeping Waters. And it, it's, a, it's an exceptional book. And she's going to be launching it at the Book Lounge on Monday, Monday evening. That's tomorrow night. Uh, and she's going to be talking to Andrew Brown who is himself one heck of an author. So you, you kind of go there and you'll get two for the price of one. So that's something to know if you're a, a book lounge person. Make sure you don't miss that, that one. That's Karen Brainard talking to Andrew Brown about her new book, Weeping Waters. In fact, they've got a whole slew of events happening at the book lounge. So make sure you sign up for their newsletter and you can find out all about it. The other thing I just wanted to tell you about that we spoke about last week, we talked to Jean Williams of Biblionef who have this wonderful little campaign going called My Language, My Heritage. 
and what they're asking of you is to take a photograph or take a selfie of yourself with a book, any book, uh, your favourite book or whatever book you're enjoying at the moment, and pop it through to them. And by doing that, you'll be donating 60 rand. SMS it through to them. You'll be donating 60 rand to their campaign, which is all about getting books to children and having them enjoy the pleasure of reading. So, hey, 60 rand, what is that? Something to uh, something to think about. And it's Biblionef with an F at the end. That's B-I-B-L-I-O-N-E-F. And the website is Biblionef-S-A, and I think it's .org.za, but just Google. And if you can't find it, give us a call 0892-102010. But moving on with the show, let's get started. <laughs> up our first hero or heroine on the it's funny the word heroine seems to have dropped off the planet somewhat it's a bit like actor and actress isn't it um but our first hero then is uh, is judith crummock who is uh, somebody who knows sfm very well having been here for some time however having said that she actually left she was arts editor here at sfm but she left back in 1997 to go and make another life for herself in the united states well she's certainly done that she's fulfilling her dream she is now presenting classical music on a radio station on the east coast so not lost to the radio uh, to the airwaves but um, Judith has also written a book, and it's called Beyond the Baobab, and uh, she's here with us to explain all about it. Lovely to have you with us, Judith, and, and welcome back to SAFM. Oh, thank you. It's so wonderful to be here with you, mm. Nancy, and in these wonderful surroundings. I mean, it's it's really like coming home, so thank you so much for having well, me. It's an absolute pleasure, and I imagine it hasn't much changed <laughs> in the 25 years since you were here. Um, well, it hasn't, it hasn't. Um, but just looking at this studio, perhaps it hasn't. Judith, interesting about you is that you you have decided to write a book as somebody who's really in, involved with music. But talking about uh, hero, heroine, actor, actress, actually you start. Let's do a little bit of a bio on you. You started out as an as an actor. Um, but then moved into radio. Just explain what happened. Well, I found much as I adored radio and, um, and much as I adored being an actor, and I still think that it's one of the most creative things to do, that you arrive at the first read-through with just some words on a page, and after the rehearsal period, you've got this three-dimensional piece that is capable of moving people's hearts and minds, and I, I, I just thought it was wonderful. I didn't, have, I, I didn't have a thick enough skin for the ancillary stuff. It just really, I found I was getting really depressed and I had to have a look at why. And I found the segue into radio really just so wonderful. Uh, and it, it, I, I'm sure that that's, I mean, I don't know, I don't actually know how you started out, Nancy, but you know what, if you do find a niche, it it's just seems as if you've come home in a sense. And that was how it felt for me. And I did my editions right here in this very studio and then happened to be up in Johannesburg which was where I where I worked and so that was how that came about so I sort of reinvented myself and found that I could take a lot of those techniques that that one does acquire over to broadcasting although having said that of course as an actor you have the great fortune of hiding behind a character whereas when you are a broadcaster you just do that at your peril you have to be absolutely authentic so so that was an adjustment but you know in terms of how you would use your voice how you would pace things how you would use light and shade i think those are things that are certainly transferable hmm. 
Not so easily transferred is one country to another. You talk about segueing from acting to radio, and I'm just thinking, how does one make the adjustment from South Africa to the United States, which are worlds apart? I'm, I'm sure there are many similarities. First of all, why did you go? I went because I had always yearned to be able to live overseas and I've had the good fortune to meet and fall in love with an American and even greater good fortune he fell in love with me and <laughs> so we decided that we would get married and that I have to say was a, a little bit of tension because I wanted to be absolutely sure that I wasn't marrying him just as a ticket to be able to go to America so you know, we we were back and forth a little bit about that, but I did feel sure, and and it was it was you know I really really just very very lucky that I could because so many people dream of another life in another world, and there are many reasons to emigrate. I think a large one for me was just the sense of of exploring more of of growing more of trying to realize more and i i had a sense that i could do that in a country like america and uh, and so it i was just blessed that i had that that ability to do that because you know so many people are stuck in the countries that they come from and my case also was different in that I had a choice to go it wasn't that I was a refugee or anything hideous or like that. Yeah. exactly so uh, so it was it was really the best scenario for me and if you go with a spouse as a sponsor it's quite the best way to be able to do it but even that is onerous <laughs> yeah so you, you were talking in fact you were talking to John Orr yes, another name from from uh, from the annals of the history of S AFM, and you were explaining that you were neither a refugee nor an exile, but you were in fact an African living in America, so it made you an African-American, exactly. which, to which everybody fell about laughing, yeah. understandably. So, you know, to, to, to transfer yourself with all your possessions is one thing, to transfer your skills and make yourself relevant and appropriate in another country is not so easy. It seems that you've acquired your dream job, which is being a classical music DJ on a, a radio station on the East Coast. Did that happen easily? Surprisingly easily, actually. Uh, it's it was sort of like a, like a cold call, which is is very rare to do. It's usually much more by connection. And when we arrived, we had no jobs or anywhere to live, and so we just thought, well, you know, Washington's as good a place as any to start out. And then from there, my husband actually got a job uh, near Pittsburgh, uh, sort of over more in inland. Um, but it was a small place where we were living. Uh, it was at one, it's, it's a town called Wheeling and it's in West Virginia. And it was at one stage actually the capital of the, ca of the country. It, the capital moved about at the beginning. They couldn't quite decide where it should be. And, uh, but it had uh, become quite, quite small and insular and sort of affected by the rust belt and all of that sort of thing. And so it didn't look as if there was going to be that much for me. I was starting to build up a bit of a portfolio. They do have an art center there, and it looked as if there were some possibilities there. They also have a classical music station in Pittsburgh, which was sort of just like an hour away. So it was looking as if I was starting to get something going. Um, but then I had also subscribed to a publication called Jobs in Public Radio, and I saw this job. and. 
So my husband had just taken this position and I showed him the job uh, sort of a little sheepishly and he said, well, it looks as if it was written for you, so go ahead and apply. And I did and they invited me for an interview and and so it was just ice cold. And, uh, you know, I have to say at the same time, I, was, I also applied to a, a position in Cincinnati and I've yet to hear from them. So it's, it was obviously just that in Baltimore... I don't know if it was the proximity to Washington, but they weren't as put off by the fact that I sounded so different. <laughs> yes, sounding different, I suppose, is an issue, isn't it? Certainly on the radio. Um, the, the issue here at hand is actually the fact that you've written a book. So there you are busy doing all sorts of things. And I think that you underwent a, a writing course and you decided to write a book. And, and it's a case of what, write what you know and what you knew with what it was like to move to another country. So this book of yours tells a story that a lot of people will know, a lot of people who've moved from one country to another for whatever reason. 25 years on, you've looked back and you said, well, well, this is how it was. And how was it? And how is it? It Are is, you still an alien? Uh, I, I'm not an alien on paper. I am an American citizen. So the idea of being an alien American, um, I was that for about four years. And it's a very strange term, but anyway, that's what I was. But, but I am a citizen now. And I think there are two ways of looking at this. You can either think, oh, well, I don't really belong anywhere. And that's also okay. I mean, I think some there have always been nomads, and some people are. And I think that they're comfortable with that and I don't really mind that I mean we I've lived in in many places you know more than 25 homes in the course of my life so I think I've done a lot of that and it doesn't hold terror for me um, but I think the other way to look at it is that you actually have two bases and that's how I have actually quite recently been able to think about that so I, I've been living in America now for 16 years and so I'm 16 years old in America but I do have all of this other sediment of life in South Africa and I feel as if I can pull them and it's quite quite a, a privilege really to be able to do that and to feel that I can draw on both of these worlds because I will always of course be African and when I come back it is you know incredibly nostalgic and I I just know instinctively where I'm going and 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 how things work and and I think meeting up with old people I mean I don't know when last I saw you Nancy you know and that is such a lovely thing to do uh, but at the same time I now do have this other new life in a first world country with all that that has to offer as well and so I, I feel as if I'm really able to be very enriched by both of my backgrounds. One of the things about leaving South Africa that makes it different from leaving any other country and, and making a switch from one country to another is that South Africa has undergone such a sea change in the years that you've been away. Do you miss that? Do I miss the change? Yes. Do you miss the fact that we've been through such a huge amount? Um, do you miss not having been part of that? I... I was to some extent I mean I wasn't a part of it in, in, in the terms of how it has unfolded but I was here when Mandela was freed I was here when he was uh, elected president and so I could get the first taste of it and I know that it has changed so much since then and I've come back every year or two and seen really remarkable changes and one of the things that I think that is so magical is how 
we always feared that something like a social structure of apartheid would be so entrenched that it would take generations to unravel. And I think in some respects that's true. I think that may be so. But but I just find that there is such an ease of back and forth between this very wide range of uh, cultures and races and ethnicities that we have in South Africa and I, I see that every time I've come back I've found it more and more relaxed and that has been tremendous to watch and uh, and actually is perhaps more so here than in America which you would think would would be it you'd think it would be the other way around and and I, I have to wall my eyes a little because you know I think America was one of the strongest countries in terms of uh, political boycotts during the apartheid years and everything. But they have by no means, you know, really completed the work of race relations there. So there are still, I think, a, a lot of, of issues there. And so I think... Uh, and that's not to say that there aren't issues in South Africa that that linger and and may for generations. Mm -hmm. But you know, if you just are in a in a very casual social situation, it's just not an issue. You know that there is this this uh, hodgepodge of people that are just communicating very well. Just lastly, your own issues. Um, having written a book, and they do say that it's very cathartic. It is an opportunity. You went, you went through the writing course. And it seems that you have facility for writing, so what took you so long to be doing it? But <laughs> having put it all out, do you, do you feel a lot better? Do you feel it helped you? And thus, do you think it could help other people? You know, Joan Didion has this wonderful saying that she writes in order to understand. And it's just so true. I think to try to articulate something by writing it down you can think things through and and even talk them through, but actually to have to write it down and find out how this word will make a difference to the balance of the sentence and how that sentence will affect how the paragraph grows. And, and, and trying to crystallize your thoughts into those quite technical elements, I think, is a, a really remarkable thing. And the reason that I had to write, because I had never thought of myself as a writer, but I was just so bottled up with this experience that I tried to write it, and it was really not, not successful. It was quite bland and flat, and this happened and that happened. And so going through the creative writing course, was so magical for that just just to learn how to find the, dr the dramatic arc the narrative arc how to use character how to use conversation how to how to find a writer's yeah. voice really is, yeah. is what it's about you know later on in the program we're going to be talking about editing and the, the thorny issue of having somebody edit your book and um, uh, sadly we we're out of time but I would like to have known if you had a sort of a good or a bad editing experience did you have an editor we had a, a sort of pool editor mm. I must say because working through the program and that and this book was self-published as part of my my thesis for the MFA program and we worked very closely together as a group of memoirists and and we also obviously had uh, you know the person who was overseeing our supervisor yeah. for the thesis and so there was a lot of that kind of editing going on it was not one specific person and that kind of pooled editing is really quite interesting That's exactly what we're going to be talking about later on I love the idea of 
being a part of a group of memoirists, it sounds like a sort of a string quartet. <laughs> Judith Crummock, thank you very much. I'm going to give out the details. I think your book is available online through your WordPress uh, page, which is newworldnotes.wordpress.com. Newworldnotes.wordpress.com. And I will give you that. I will put it up on our Facebook page because I think that's probably the best way because uh, obviously I don't always say things as clearly as I could. New World Notes. .wordpress.com. Judith Crummock, thank you very much. And thank the book, once you again, so much. It's called Beyond the Baobab. SAFM Literature with Nancy Richards. Well, SAFM Literature it is. And uh, next we are going to be talking to a young man by the name of Bongani Madondo who has written a book. I think it's a book that he's been thinking about writing for a very, very long time. It's called I'm Not Your Weekend Special. And if you don't know who it's about, well, then you don't know Brenda Fassi, and I'm sure you do. We've got him on the line. Hi, Bongani. Hi, Nancy. How are you doing? Excellent. Hi, SAFM listener. Oh, hi, hi. Lovely to have you with us. Bongani, mm. we're just going to talk quickly for a minute, then we're going to cross uh, to get a little bit of a cricket crossing. But mm. I, I know that this is, book has been with you for a very long time. Just tell us the story, the journey of you, when you first met, got to meet Brenda, who was your hero, when you first got to meet her, to actually writing this book took I don't know how many years. Tell me the journey. It's a lifetime journey, almost. Um, I don't know the hero part, but I'm sure you can get away with it. Okay. <laughs> um, so, so the, it's almost, almost like a star crush. You know what I mean? Like, like having a, a crush on, on, on a, on a, on your favorite rock star, and you put a picture of her on your wall. Um, so the first time I, I saw Brenda Farsi, I saw her through my mind, sort of imaginatively, before I even laid my papers on her. I, I listened to, to her album, uh, Weekend Special, in, in late 1993. And I was living in, in Hammerskral. We, our families were in Hammerskral. My grandfather was a bishop. We lived in a lovely, very, you know, sheltered family. Double story, piano playing lessons very middle class, pretty uptight, and this girl came, played this music uh, on the local radio station, and it blew the entire, the entire middle class, black middle class edifice that I was living under, underneath. And, <laughs> you know, and, Bongani, and I'm going I'm to hold it right there because I'm sure you speak for a lot of people when you say it just blew you away, blew your entire safe little middle class situation to pieces. So, But we're going to take a quick break for a crossing one. Hold all those thoughts. We're going to come right back to you, okay? You're welcome. Okay. You're welcome. Talking to Bongani Madondo, who's going to be talking all about... Uh, his hero worship of Brenda Fassi in the book that's resulted, it's called I'm Not Your Weekend Special. And just once again, a quick reminder that the program's going to be a little bit short today because we're going to be crossing to the Cenotaph for the Remembrance Day service with Peter James Smith. But right now we have on the other end of the line Bongani Madondo, who has, uh, in fact, he himself is editor and senior writer at Rolling Stone magazine, but he's been a Brenda Fassi fan ever since, way before he set his peeps on her, as he calls, but when he first heard her. That's such a fabulous story, Bongani. But you know the the other, the other fabulous story that I love about your book is that when you finally got to meet her, I think you were a rookie journalist at the time, you yeah. said to her, I really want to write your book. And she said, yes, you can, if you can catch me. And yeah. I love yeah. that. And it's taken you all this time. To ten years since, since she died. So, so moving on from when you, you, know, you were blown away by her music, when did you finally get to meet her? 
Well, I got to them to meet her. So I always say to people, I don't know what you mean by meet, because there's a metaphoric meet. But then I saw her the first time uh, at the concert in my township in Hamaskra. That was in 1983 again. But then I was in no position to quote unquote meet her. Mm. Okay, so the official meet, the official meeting was in, um, I think it was 1997. 97, 96? No, I think it was around 95. Mm. Oh, no, no, you know what, my memory. Um, I think it was around 90, early 95. Yes, it was early 95. I remember very well what was what was um, the set of circumstances that led me to that. Um, I think I was assigned by the Sunday Independent had, had a lovely, lovely uh, magazine insert called Sunday Life around that time. It was edited by a guy called Daniel Ford. It was a beautiful uh, supplement. And I think uh, he got caught wind of the fact that I'm obsessed with Brennan. And then he commissioned me with a beautiful photographer who is now lead called uh, Crispian Plunkett. An amazing photographer. And then he said, uh, go get us a beautiful portrait of Brennan Fassett. So then I chased after her. I chased after her for close to four or five months. I never managed to get hold of her at that time. But I was working for City Press. And so I kept the Sunday Independent um, profile assignment on hold. And I went about my daily job at City Press. And, and at some point, one of the editors said, can you get us a beautiful story on Brenna Fassi? Then I went to see Brenna Fassi at her, at her apartment at a place called Umbilo. No, was it Umbilo? Um, I think it's Umbilo. Now I might be, I might be confusing this name. Oh, yeah, yeah. Now I remember. It's called Mbali. Mbali. Mm-hmm. So it was Mbali block of flats, like a little ponty, uh, a beautiful architected round uh, building on Louis Bosa in Johannesburg in Peria North. So I went up there. Hugh um, Masekela stayed a street away or so, and Barbara Masekela, and there were a lot of other people around the town. So I went up to Brenafasa to told her who, 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 who am I, where do I come from, and what is this all about. Because I've been calling her ever since, and she's been dropping my phone and this and this. And, this. <laughs> and I thought, you know, let me just dust that here, you know. So I went to her place, and so she banged the door on my face, you know. And I think there was a Nigerian dealer in there, or a Cameroonian dealer, or whoever it is. I'm not, I don't want to put sort of a, a, an African nationality as to, as to, you know, put a bad name on everyone mm-hmm. else, paint everyone with a, with a negative brush. But yes, we know that the, the, the drug pushers of the time were not South Africans around that time. And so, so she was busy inside. Then I said, I can see you busy inside. Just give me the date, I'll come back on that particular date. Then she banged the door again on the second time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think I was 25 or 6, I can tell you this, uh, I, I, you know what, I can now confess, I think somehow I dropped the tear on my way back. <laughs> oh, you remember that the disappointment was not her not giving me the interview, yeah. but this was my childhood, as you had said, my childhood uh, dream. You know, my childhood hero, you know, I wanted to see this woman. I had a, 
I had a star crush on her. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, for me, it was a big deal to meet her, you know. And she and, and so she showed me her, her other true colors, her other true colors, you know. And, and you know, she's been in showbiz for close to 15 years around the time I went to see her. And and she, she was used to all of the things and being pursued and everything. And she was tough. She was a tough cookie. Yeah. She was already mm-hmm. in a drug game and everything. She didn't care for my sensitivities. I'm a young boy from Mama's crowd. You know, who am I? You know? <laughs> and so I went home very, very disappointed. But that, that helped me helped me because it sort of fortified me. I knew then, I knew then that's the challenge, that if I can get hold of Brenna Fassi, I can interview anyone in the entire world. Well, well you finally cracked it. <laughs> I have to say, 10 points for tenacity, Bongani. I mean, it's really hanging in there. But uh, interesting that you mentioned Hugh and Barbara Masekela because Hugh Masekela has written a wonderful forward to this book. And in oh, fact, yeah. a, a lot of people have contributed, um, you know, their bit of Brenda, their stories that they, they've got. But it's yours that I think that really overrides the whole thing because it, it's been beyond an obsession for you. And you yeah. mentioned, you said to her, so you went there and you said to who you were, where you were from. Interesting yeah. about your journey with Brenda is that you decided that you were going to find out where she was from, and you did a whole lot of research going to where to find her roots, and that in itself is a yeah. story. Just tell us that if you uh, can. Let me t- take you through that quickly. I know you've got a short show today, and I'm really enjoying the interview with Good. you. Um, <clears throat> let me put it for what it is. I was inspired by Mark Gefferson's uh, biography of Tabombeke. Okay. Yeah, I was completely. And 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 you know what? Now we all we I would like us to talk about race a bit because people we we all of us we're very liberal and very understanding and very you know so we don't want to talk about race in case I make Nancy feel a bit queasy. Mm. And but there's a particular way of talking about race without making people queasy. You know, um, I'll tell you my inspiration about that. I thought, hmm, white boy, white Jewish boy goes to the Eastern Cape and digs so much history about our people, the people that Tabumbeki comes from, African folk people, and write such a beautiful, convincing, almost anthropological, mm-hmm. if it was not such a well-written piece, it could have been the best anthropology, sociological piece. And then we haven't done something like this. I said, mm-mm, I need to do something. It might not be on that scale, but this, he set the bar, Mark has set the bar, and I need to go that deep, you know? And and ever since I've been chasing that feel, to be honest with you, you know, I've been chasing that. I'm like, I don't want the feel only, I need the roots. Mm-hmm. You know, I need to go and get the roots. But beyond the roots, I will tell you what, what, you know, which is slightly different from Mark. Mark was like a formal biography, although he went there and dug so much beautiful stuff about Mbeke's people. I wanted to do the same, but I wanted to turn the trip into a story on its own. You know, you should remember that I'm a rock and roll writer. I'm a classical rock critic, among other things. And I thought the road trip itself, from Jack Kerouac's time on the road to James Dean's time, to everyone who's gone on the Chitlin circuit, and the road trip itself, it's it's a story. It's a very essential, almost sacred story, essential narrative in rock and roll writing and Mm -hmm. rock and roll journalism in the last 50 years. And I thought, I'm going to turn the pursuit for, I mean, the road story in search of the roots into a story on its own. So I had almost like a double stories. And I felt that would be richer, you know. 
And, and, and really that was it. So I spent uh, in and out of the Eastern Cape for a, a year, in and out, you know, doing research in the entire Eastern Cape. I even paid an anthropologist from Western Cape. Uh, the guy is retired from UWC and, and he, he, he accompanied me. He essentially was going to do the story before me. And, and for some reason he was not able to deliver. So that's fine. I'm happy that I, I tagged along so that when, 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 when he failed to I was able to to turn to the notes and the recollections and the tapes and everything. I was able to to write the story that I wrote. And so I was interested in finding out who is Farsi, what kind of name is Farsi. You know, I've never heard of any Farsi before at all. You know, I knew people were Farsi in terms of their behavior and moods, but I've never heard of someone called Farsi. Mm. Is she black? Is she African American? Is she quote unquote clear learn? You know who. Who's Farsi? Where are they from? You know, then, then, then that for me was the pool. And, and it, it, absolutely, it's interesting to hear that story because I read that whole j- your journey and it was, it was completely fascinating. And I thought, gosh, because you went from pillar to post, from one person to another person and getting up at six o'clock in the morning to find another person. It was, I mean, it was cinematic, you know, that whole cinematic journey. Cinematic is in chase of the ghost, mm. in pursuit of the ghost. Mm. Mm. It's almost like autofictional. It's almost like it doesn't exist. Mm. And, and, and it, it can, you know, Nancy, I'm, I'm quite passionate about this part that you're talking about right now, simply because as a writer, ever since, uh, from my journalism days and to my creative nonfiction uh, days, because I have this parallel things where I'm a writer, as in like a, a, a creative uh, writer, and then I have, I have another job as a reporter as well. But all along, even as a reporter, I've always seen myself as a writer, ultimately. And everyone said, you're so fictional, you know? The thing about you is that you don't write fiction, otherwise you would have been sued left and right. And But but your entire life, you belong in fiction. I'm like, yeah, maybe, but I love non-fiction. So I'm, I love the idea of, of, of applying my true, true skills, which is imaginative uh, fantasy, imaginative uh, futuristic writing, imaginative fiction, and apply it on on a biographical subject. You know, just just bring the skills of that yeah. and apply it on a real human being. Imagine the drama that comes out of it, because then you don't have to dramatize it. It's there. Well, you it's how you then represent yeah, you it, how you retell it. You certainly don't have to dramatize Brenda Fassi's life. No, that's for no, sure. No, but there was no, a point no. where she actually called you and said, "Okay, it's time." Oh yeah, there were. Which must have been for you. It must have been a real hallelujah moment. What, it, was it, she? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was an hallelujah moment. But what exactly did it really mean? Yes, she said it is time not for the book, but for me to get the newspaper article mm-hmm. interview. And so I use that. I use many books have been written um, uh, well by a writer, especially people like Rolling Stone, Vanity Fair, and I think even Mike Fessa has done that as well. Uh, whereby, you know, one entry point where you write a big profile, whether it's 2,000 or 3,000 words, or even 1,000 words, and then you have a, a close connection with the subject, and you can expand it into a book or a monograph after that. So that was that. So, so when she said it's time, I I knew that I was going to use that opportunity to to forge 
quite a long-lasting relationship. If you still want to have me hanging around, I'll hang around. I'll do. I'll wash her dishes. I'll. I'll, I'll do everything. I'll. I'll be there. I'll be at her back and call. So I could get my story. I'm that kind of person, you know. Uh, almost, almost total annihilation of ego in pursuit of yeah. the story. It's almost manipulative when you think about it. Because yeah. I'll do anything to get my story. Well, you, <laughs> your story, you certainly got. And uh, the last chapter in your book is called a thirty-year disc of the disco queen which you know which is also about her and her music and there's so much about Brenda here not just your story Bongani but the all the other people who you you scooped up to go and give you their little yeah. bits I mean just yeah. lastly that must have been quite a journey just listening to what other people had to say how did you do that I, I had you the author who came you know the one who preceded me. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 I missed her name, but I heard you. You know, you said something quite important to her. You mentioned something like um, because there were a bunch of mem- mem- memoirs or memoirs, mm. and you said you guys were like a symphony orchestra or something like yes. that. I had to say that. Um, it was almost like that because, much as the book says edited by Bongani. It's some kind of literary trick because half of it, as you have rightfully said, right, half of it is my book completely and the other half has allowed other people to, to come in and then contribute and say their stories. So my story, conceptually, conceptually, I was not doing a traditional edited by book. I was not doing a, 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 a traditional anthology. No, 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 no. I was not interested in that. I was edited, in fact, myself by, by, by the real, real copy editors, text editors at the publishing house, the readers and all that. And, and I was happy that I was edited and we work on it together. But, uh, but, but conceptual editing, as in like the invitation for them, for other contributors to come in, I, I imagine it as like a big band conduction, almost like a classical symphony orchestra conduction. I look at the missing parts that can make an interesting one whole, a complete portrait. And I said, sure, here are my obsessions, Here's my thing and all that, but it doesn't complete Brenda Farsi. I don't care how much I spend obsessing about her. There's no single one person who's going to write a convincing portrait of her. You might have to spend 20 years and get all those family stuff, and you know, sometimes mm. it's not easy. So then I started inviting people, people like Professor Njablondebele, Mabatu Silimelam, Vukile Pukwanashal, Blechnoz, Janet Smith, and all of those. And, 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 and the prerequisite was one. This was only one condition. I said, guys, write me whatever you can, but on one condition, bear your soul. Let it bleed. Let me see that wrist cut. You know, usually most of the time, as journalists, as sociologists, as researchers, we write about people, living people, all dead people, but real souls. We write about real souls at a distance. And I thought that is a bit literal fake, you know? I felt that if you write about somebody, you need to, automatically, you are putting part of your soul in it. Whether then stylistically you might choose to remove yourself from it or immerse, but the fact is you apply your soul in it. There's nothing as personal, as in inherently and intensely personal as writing, you know? Bongani, so we're going to, to have them, to... I need yeah. you to reveal a bit of yourself. That was the thing, and they revealed that, and it was such a beautiful conduction. Well, Bongani, thank you for revealing yourself, for bearing your soul here, and I I just I, I just love all your analogies. There's just so many wonderful things there. And if for no other 
another reason by this book because it, it's called I'm Not Your Weekend Special, edited and, and partly written by Bongani Mandondo, just for that very first chapter, that, that, that finding Brenda, that searching for Marlborough. It's been fabulous, Bongani. Thank you very much. Maybe next time we can talk, um, you come into the studio and we can talk again. Has me longer. Yeah. I'm doing this. You can tell I'm on a roll. I can hear. <laughs> next time. Next time. Thank you so much. Oh, for Take Thank care. you so much, Nancy. Bless you. Yeah. Thanks. Okay. Bongani Madondo, absolutely lovely. Well, there you go. If you're a Marlboro fan, get hold of it. I'm not your weekend special, and it's published by Picador. SAFM Literature with Nancy Richards. Well, I have to say, some interviews you just don't want to end because there's just so much to say and uh, what a magnificent way with words he has. And it's reflected right there in the book as well, Bongani Madondo. Well, next up, we're going to be talking about editing. And it was interesting to hear what Judith had to say about editing. And uh, maybe you're writing a book, maybe you haven't, maybe you've read a book and you've thought, this is really badly edited. Well, here's your chance to uh, do, uh, do something about it. Because on the line, we have a gentleman by the name of Hector MacDonald. He himself is an author, a best-selling author, I believe. He's also a publisher, as well as a strategy and communications consultant. But he's come up with a very novel way of publishing through advanced editions. And I think what he's actually doing is inviting you too, dear reader, to actually have your say in the editing process. Well, we got him on the line all the way from the UK. Hi, Hector. Hi, Nancy. Nice to have you with us. So, a best-selling... Oh, be on a, a three-hour book show. I mean, that's something that we in the UK could only dream of. Well, we dream of it too here, I have to tell you, except that today it's only two hours because we're having a remembrance oh. day, so it's like, no, but there you go. So, Hector, this seems like such a um, an interesting idea because what you're doing... Just expel it, explain to us. I've been... The way I see it is that you're inviting people to read a material online and have their say about the editing process, which seems to me to be hectic <laughs> but just explain it in in your words well you're nearly you're nearly there so we um we we're sort of taking the principle of beta reading which a lot of people a lot of authors already use where they get close friends and family people they trust to read a manuscript before it goes out to, to, to publishers even um and expanding it to the entire world saying well there's no reason now in this age of interconnectivity in this age of ebooks where you can put out the text of a book you know perfectly presented and, 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 and beautifully formatted to the entire world um, ahead of the final publication and invite readers to say, Do you know what, this is, you know, this is great in many ways, but actually you've got one fact wrong here, yeah. or maybe, you know, have you thought about doing this differently? Have you thought about having this character come in on this scene where, you know, it would, it would just add to the whole effect of the book? And it's it's come from this, 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 as you say, frustration that a lot of readers have, I think, with that sense that books, you know, they're nearly there. They're just not quite perfect. And it may be because you have an expertise in a particular field, or it may be particularly because you have a particular sensitivity for the, you know, the subject in hand. Um, but we certainly believe that readers have a lot to contribute, and now we've got the mechanisms of technology to, to harness that yeah. creativity and that insight. Yeah. Well, it is exactly as I imagine, and I suppose the reason I say, oh, it sounds hectic, is because the thing about editing is that there is, you know, how many people have read some editing uh, or have read a piece of copy and one person, one editor would do X with it and another editor would do Y with it. You know, getting the facts right is one thing. Getting the commas in the right place is another thing. But the way you translate something, I mean, a book can be made or broken 
by an editor and editors can be very fierce and they can have a heavy hand so imagine the whole world editing one book I, I, all I can see is clashing sparks <laughs> well, that, that's certainly a danger, and, and I think it's important to say that, you know, we, we use professional editors just like any normal traditional publishing house would, uh, right up to the point at which we put the, the book out to the public. So the author has already worked closely with a, a trusted structural editor you know, over a period of several months, and the book has then been copy edited in a normal way. So that, the kind of the, the heavy lifting of the editing has already been done. What we're looking at from, from readers is more points in the book, particular passages, okay. particular uh, issues that may arise, where Tweaking. I think, you know, people can have a very helpful input without, yeah. you know, challenging the overall fabric of the book. Yeah. And the, the point you make about different people having different opinions is absolutely true, but we've allowed for that by, by creating a sort of forum structure on the Advanced Editions website, which allows people to comment on each other's suggestions and oh, even vote okay. on them. So it's very interactive. Raised or lowered some to yeah. raise or lower the popularity score of a particular suggestion, and that gives the author some kind of indication of whether or not they should yeah. pay any attention to it. How instructive and how educational uh, to be able to interact and see what some people have got to say. I mean, somebody gave me a book to look at. Um, it's self-published. It's called Tangle Weeds by a lady by the name of Sarah Key. And I haven't spoken to her. I'm not sure if, if we will or won't because we get so many books. But the point is that I thought, now, I wonder if she's been edited. Would it be, you know, can people go onto your website with their own copy and put it out for for the advanced editing process? Not at this stage, okay. although that's something I'd love to be able to do mm. in, in, in a later iteration of the site. I'd love to be able to have a, a self-publishing arm. But for the moment, we're focusing on on a handful of, of professionally produced, professionally edited books um, published in the normal way, but with mm. this one extra dimension of, of editing and um, bringing in the, the wider uh, readership. Yeah. I suppose it's a bit like the, Wikipedia, uh, the Wikipedia principle, really. Sometimes you go onto Wikipedia and you think, oh, well, that's gospel, but then you think, oh, no, hang on, that's not right. So, you know, what, what we see out there isn't necessarily gospel. And if you are somebody who is a, a specialist on whatever it may be, I'm looking at your Madame Bo the colour of Madame Bovary's eyes here, um, you know, you could, you could say, but they weren't brown at all, they were absolutely blue. And is it going to happen then? Will those changes be made? Or will you still uh, sort of ascertain whether or not you're going to make the changes? So it's completely up to the author what changes are made. We, we, we absolutely didn't want to have the Wikipedia model of people coming in and editing directly yeah. uh, the, the, the manuscript. So the suggestions are made um, separate to the manuscript on this, this forum structure, um, but then the author can have a look at those and, and, and respond to them and give their own, you know, thank, thank good contributors and, and, of course, even credit them in the final book. Um, but it's always up to the author to decide what to take up. Now, if someone points out a mistake like the, the Madame Bovary's eyes, um, changing colour throughout the book, as, mm. as you just mentioned. You know, clearly an author would be wise to respond to that. Um, and uh, we've had a few of those cases. But equally, you know, other people will come on and just will, will have a, an opinion. So one of the books that we're, we're, we're piloting with is um, a memoir by a Canadian journalist uh, from her time in Afghanistan called Dispatches from the Kabul Cafe. And it's a, it's a beautifully, you know, intricate personal memoir of, of her time and, and the people that she knew there, the, 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 the fight she had for, for, for encouraging women um, in Afghanistan towards, you know, greater, <coughs> um, greater freedom and, and mm. so on. And, uh, 
and her, you know, but also her life and loves and, and the, the dogs she had there and all the kind of things that go alongside a major war that, you know, just yeah. get forgotten in, in normal correspondence. Now, you know, some of the comments that we've had, some of the suggestions people have asked to, you know, to, to, to bring up, you know, greater spotlights on certain characters that, that she's mentioned in passing but have found, you know, been fascinating but have then fallen by the wayside. And she may or may not choose to do that. It's up yeah. to her completely whether she responds to that. But it gives her a sense. It's almost like market research. It gives yeah. her a sense of what her market, her readers, are asking for. Yeah. How fabulously interesting. Suddenly, being a writer is not such a lonely profession if you can sort of share it with the world. Now, this is Heidi Kingston and a book called Dispatches from the Cabal Cafe. Is that now still, if anybody wants to read it, is it on your website? And can people, I think you have to sign up to be part of advanced editions. Well, it's very simple. You can go on, you can go straight to the website advancededitions.com and download half of her book for free okay. um, without registering or anything like that. You just click the download button and you've got half a Kindle version or half a PDF or, or whatever version you prefer. Um, then if you want to start giving suggestions, you do need to register, but it's an incredibly simple process. Mm. It's just a, an email address and a username. Um, or you can even do it through Facebook and Twitter if you want to. So that shouldn't be too much of a barrier. Um, but it's absolutely anyone who either knows anything about Afghanistan has been in Kabul, you know, will have a, uh, an expert view on some of the things he's writing about. But equally, you know, people who know nothing about the country or the the the, the, the war there will still have a, a really interesting insight on, yeah. you know, her her descriptions of her relationships there and, and the kinds of people she met and yeah. maybe, you know, have some suggestions for how she can um, bring out certain strengths in the book that perhaps she's underplaying. Yeah wonderful isn't it just don't you just love books because it's just such a wonderful way of finding out about all sorts of areas that you just simply don't know hector it's been fascinating i'm going to give out the details once again it's advanced editions.com advance advance editions.com is that right that's right yeah excellent very best of luck i'll check out the site thank you very much take care thanks very much for your time. Pleasure. hector mcdonald advance editions and the book that he was talking to uh, about there was called dispatches from the Kabul cafe which in itself sounds fascinating so stay tuned you're listening to safm literature <laughs>